Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another week of Don't Box Me In. I am your host, Lana Reed, and we have another wonderful and empowering show scheduled for you today. Uh, one of the reasons that I do this show, uh, that I have the type of guest on that I do, is like, that I like to share the trials and tribulations of life and how they can be overcome. It is natural when we are faced with challenges to want to sit in the corner and lick our wounds and cry, woe is me. But I think if we are exposed to others who might have it just as bad, if not worse, then it might provide some motivation to dust ourselves off, get out there, kick some butt, and overcome, achieve, and thrive. My guest today is a true example of excelling in spite of your circumstances. To say that Dale Stanton grew up in dysfunction is an understatement, and to sit and listen to how she has taken control of her life and succeeded is even more amazing. Dale Stanton is the author of The Hooker's Daughter and also serves on the North Shore Board of Juvenile Scholarship Aid. She volunteers as a big sister and is an active member of Power of Women, the National Association of Women on the Rise, and so much more. She is here today to share her incredible journey with us, and it is with pleasure that I welcome her to the show. Dale, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being invited to speak with you and have your audience listen. No problem. My pleasure. I thank you for making time for me today. Uh, so I'm so glad to have you here, and I can't wait to hear everything you've got to say uh, to us. Um, I want to start off with uh, you You are a product of the Jewish Boston community in the 1950s, and, and with that, there's a strong and rich culture and belief system that comes along with that. Um, family and extended family are very, very important. Um, is it safe to say, or would you would you say that you grew up uh, with you know the traditional Passovers, festival lights, and such. Oh, absolutely! The community I lived in was first and second generation of basically immigrants that uh, came here to America, and uh, first and second generation families. And it was very much like a ghetto, if you want to think of it mm-hmm. that way. Even though there were other ethnic groups and within the community, Irish and Italian and so forth. The enclave that I uh, lived in and participated in was strongly Jewish. Okay, okay. Now, is it just you, or you have a sister? She's older or younger? My sister's six and a half years older, and there's only the two of us. Only the two of you guys, two girls. Okay. Um, You know, I was checking out your book, The Hooker's Daughter, and you give some very vivid details of growing up, you know, on a three-story brick building in Blue Hill Avenue. Um, the whole surrounding and the atmosphere, it just seems so rich and vibrant and full of life. Um, was your neighborhood like a pretty well-off Jewish neighborhood, or was it, I think you mentioned, it was like the ghetto? Yes, it was. I mean, in a positive way, I mean that. It wasn't impoverished, particularly. Uh-huh. It was people struggling for the American dream, and uh, it was rich in uh, the fabric, the ethnic fabric of the community, and there were many uh, symbols and signs. There were synagogues, temples, and uh, stores that really connotated the environment, uh, kosher butchers, bakeries, all those kinds of landmarks that existed. And we did have holiday celebrations uh, that existed through the year that we had strict observance to, like Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, Passover. Mm-hmm. And the other strong point was Yiddish was, the language was spoken on the streets and in homes. Good deal, good deal. I've, I've always been so fascinated. Uh, in Los Angeles, there's an area, it's on Pico Boulevard, and, you know, you get to see all the, the cultural things the Jewish community has to offer, and it's just amazing there. Um, but I want to move on to, uh, at a young age, and, and according to your book, you're around six years old, and I'm guessing it happened a little earlier, things for your family, your your sister, you, and your mom and your dad, um, got a little financially uh, stressful. Um, w- was your father working or not able to work, or what What happened with your dad where he wasn't able to provide for the family? Well, he worked, but limitedly, and from the standpoint, he didn't, I, I, I like to be kind and say he didn't have much enthusiasm for work. Okay. okay. He did go to work, but uh, I think that to relate, I don't know if he would have noticed if I had shoes on or not. 
Okay. Okay. So this was something, it wasn't like he had a steady job and lost his job. It's just something in his makeup. He was, he's, he was always like that. Well, earlier the family, his family had a business and they lost it during uh, the time of the depression, war years, and he never really rose above that loss. I don't know whether it was because he was not well prepared enough or, but basically lazy. It's just hard to know. Or maybe just a beaten down person and mm-hmm. sort of a sad soul. Okay, okay. And, you know, that's one thing um, uh, you hear about all the time uh, that's very, very strong with the the immigrant culture. You know, work is really, really stressed. So what you tend to find is a lot of immigrants coming to America and their future generations have a very strong work ethic. You know, you do whatever it takes to, you know, feed your family, provide for your family. Um so this is kind of a unique situation that you see with your dad. Yes, yes, I, w- I would think so. I mean, he was a good person, but uh, mm-hmm. again, I would have to say kindly that maybe he lacked enthusiasm to go out there and really provide for his family, or perhaps he did the best he thought that he could do. Good deal. Understood, understood. So, I mean, as a result of this, your mother kind of had to, to pick up the pieces, so to speak, and... um uh, you noticed, like you said in your book, you noticed about six-year-old that she had um, started her own business, so to speak, and and it was a very um, different kind of business, we should say kindly, as you say. Um, can you share that with us? Oh, absolutely. My mother was a prostitute, and many of the Johns, or a great deal of her business, was operated out of our apartment where she had uh, and, uh, her working hours, if you will, mornings, and oftentimes, uh, well, the Johns would come and go, but she did work in other environs beyond that community, and her reputation was really known far and wide, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, she did, uh, that was how she made money to support the family, what she felt uh, that we shouldn't go into poverty. Mm-hmm. So, out of curiosity, your dad was around while she was doing this? Was he aware? That she was doing this? Uh, well, the denial mechanism was pretty great. He certainly never acknowledged it, but de- openly. But then, of course, he would. They would have fights, and he would. Uh, she would deny it, and he would confront her, and then she'd say it wasn't so, or or she'd stop, or whatever went on, and it would be quiet for a while. But he did not. He was not a procurer. He was not there during that time. She made every attempt to cover it up. But because the gossip, and it was such a well-known secret, that it was very difficult to shield him from it, although mm-hmm. he acted as though he didn't know about it, with the exception of those times when I would hear them arguing. And oh. he might have had a, a disagreement and leave the house for three days and go back to his mother, and she'd co- he'd come back, and the dance they do was... Uh, that type of a uh, behavior. Okay, okay. So, uh, like we said, we mentioned that you can recall at six years old um, opening the door for your mother's quote-unquote dates, so to speak. Um, c- can you give me a visual design of the apartment? Because, I'm, I mean, after you open the door, you have to go somewhere. I mean, is it, are you hearing what's going on? Are you aware of what's happening while your mother's at, off in the okay well first of all it was an apartment building and uh we were in the back of the building the apartment there were 13 apartments there and my mother's thought my mother thought that the fact that these various men were coming and going would be blamed or shielded from the fact maybe they were visiting other people not necessarily okay. coming to okay. her as Johns anyway they'd walk uh they'd have to be buzzed in and when they did come in, I was, uh, hopefully I would try to escape and be <laughs> in school, or if I passed one in the hallway on my way to school, it was just awful. But on the other hand, when I was there, I would be put into another room, and uh, my mother would carry on. And you asked the question, did I hear? Uh, yeah, I would say, well, it depended where I, if I was in my bedroom. I certainly knew what was going on in the bathroom or maybe in the pantry off of the kitchen. I mean, the the actual living conditions of our apartment that we lived in were very small and crowded, and it wasn't a kind of place where 
you had a big area to escape to. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Now, you were a young girl when this was going on, and, and your sister was much older, so I'm sure she was much more aware of what was happening than you were. Was her reaction to your mother's um, profession a little bit more different than yours? or? Well, as a youngster, I... I can't really say that I know what she would have said to my mother or did. I mean, I can only speak at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, of my own behavior, which was to challenge my mother and why you're doing this and confront mm-hmm. her and tried some shock value. And basically, what it boiled down to was trying to control her and trying to make her stop because I had enough awareness to know at that young age, even. That it was absolutely an antisocial activity and a dysfunctional thing, and she shouldn't be doing it. But needless to say, as a youngster, it's very hard to accomplish that. With regard to my sister, I couldn't honestly tell you what Mm -hmm. kind of words were exchanged as a kid. However, she and I, even though we both knew what was going on, I mean, that was very obvious, as young kids, and even though she was six and a half years older than me, we didn't really share that dialogue. Okay, okay, okay. So, just out of curiosity, humorous curiosity, was your mother able to provide for the family well doing this, or were you guys still struggling? Well, I, I it, it certainly was a luxurious dish. I mean, it was <laughs> in a nice neighborhood, and uh, she, I have to say, I always, forgave her in my heart because I do feel that she saved us from poverty and Mm -hmm. paid the rent and food on the table and all the things that I suspect certainly my father wasn't able to cover. And my mother was a person that believed in, uh, she wasn't a materialistic person. She couldn't afford to be. I don't think she made that kind of money. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of responsibilities. So she did what she had, but she tried to manage to save some portion of whatever she earned to be able to have memories. And and what I mean by that was, again, she didn't luxuriate in diamonds and luxuries, but perhaps to take a trip or a theater as the years mm-hmm. ensued. So it was all about that. And, and in a certain sense, we were exposed to a degree of culture because that's what she tried to spend any spare money that she had and i'm not being i'm not trying to be wise when i say this but it is meant that way in a way if she had ten dollars nine dollars went on the necessities and you know a dollar went toward whatever the luxuries were trying to i mean and you know um as a parent you try to give your your children better opportunities and she just shows that you know even with what she was doing uh, she was trying to give her two girls some some experiences that maybe they would not have been able to had with you know the income that their father provided or whatever so i mean even in the dysfunction she was trying to do the best she could um yes i would say that was definitely true because that would be the thing that certainly my sister and I, even to this day, we draw on, on those experiences and memories of what she did try to achieve for us and for herself as well. She believed in seizing the moment, which is certainly uh, a wonderful philosophy. Oh, yes, it is. I mean, you know, um, I, I always tell people when you get to the end of this roller coaster ride, you want to be able to say, you know, I if, if I didn't do it all, I did most of it. So, you know, you have to seize as many opportunities uh, that you can and that you're afforded to, uh, you know, that life gives you. So, I mean, I think, you know, even in, like I said, how she lived her life, she still, you know, tried to give uh, her children the best. And I, I still think that's a beautiful thing, even within uh, what she had to do to make a living for the family. Um, Dale, you know, it is time for our first break. I want you to hang in there. and We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. 
Hello, hello, welcome back. I am with Dale Stanton, author of The Hooker's Daughter. And before the break, she was uh, uh, telling us about growing up in Boston in the Jewish community and uh, her mother taking on the profession of a prostitute to uh, take care of the family. And Dale, I'm not sure if in your healing and your evolution and your growth and relationship with your mother, was there any point in time where you guys maybe had the conversation and you were like, Mom, did you have any other options? I mean, could you have been a maid? Could you have been a seamstress? How is it that you came to choose this to be your only option to take care of the family? I think uh, over the years what evolved, I certainly had conversations with her, and I think she was a product of maybe her environment growing up. I believe, even though she loved her mother, I guess, uh, but her mother was harsh, and I think that her mother might have mandated her over the years to take care of the family because her father had died and mm-hmm. uh, when she was 10, and I think she grew up in a degree of poverty, and I think that the, she was frightful of what could, what would perhaps would happen to her and the family, and I think that she saw the opportunity to make, we'll call it a fast buck, and mm-hmm. maybe more than traditional employment was the way for her to go. She was a very interesting person. She, first of all, she was very beautiful, so she had mm-hmm. the looks. To, and she was charismatic with a lovely personality and had many lovely qualities. She was a sensitive and kind person. She, the problem with her was she couldn't set her boundaries. And being kind wasn't she wasn't necessarily thoughtful of what, maybe the shame and guilt and the things her children experienced. So it was, uh, a, a, the whole situation was a kind of strange. Gotcha. Okay. So she started this at, you were young when she started this. Did, yes. did, did she, did she do it? Uh, did she do it all through like high school or was there a time when she stopped? No, I believe that uh, a, a neighbor, introduced her to us and i believe that this was in probably in the early part of the marriage maybe even before i was born i suspect it was when Mm -hmm. my sister probably was uh, a youngster and uh, that's how it began but not certainly when she was in high school to my knowledge as a matter of fact she took great pride in the fact that she had done traditional work as uh, women of those days she didn't go to college but but she was able to work as a bookkeeper or a city okay. hall, and so she had a, a lot of pride in that. Okay, okay. So you you mentioned that um, maybe a neighbor introduced her to it, um, and then she oh, became. Oh, no, that was the that was. The okay, okay. So and then she, at some point she became a mother. She had you and your sister. She's married and she's still doing this. Um, how long do you recall that she she held this profession? Right up to the end of her life. Okay. Which always shocks everybody. The, I don't think that the volume or the activity was quite the same as she aged, of course. But I think if she saw the opportunity here or there and whatever clients she could glean from maybe her earlier years or would run into. Mm-hmm. So as far as I know, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct, it was right up to the end of her life. And if I may ask, when, how old was she when? It's she 73. Passed? Wow. Yeah, wow, I know. It's <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I'm glad you're having that reaction because oftentimes when I'm out on presentations at organizations and various things, there's a Q&A, and that always is one of the questions. And when I say that, people go, wow, but it's true. I mean, again, it wasn't the volume of the the dynamic uh, impact that she might have had yeah. as a younger woman. I mean, and I, I guess people really don't understand. Um, with certain professions come certain pitfalls that we don't understand. We're going to age and, you know, we're not paying into a 401k or an IRA or Social Security. So a lot of times, you know, we force our hand and we have to keep on doing what we're doing even as we age to bring in some income because, you know, the truth of the matter is we have to eat, we have to, you know, 
put clothes on our back. So I'm not sure it, you know, I, I don't know the situation, but maybe she had no other options but to continue to do those kinds of things. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I think you get fixed into a way of life, and, and again, as you age, perhaps you don't see any other options available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm just, I'm sitting here now, and I'm just picturing my mother will be, um, this is 2014, my mom will be uh, 63, or she just turned 63. So I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine my mother, like, entertaining male company i mean and it's just you would hope at a certain age in in a woman's life that you know you're just able you don't have to do those types of things i mean if you had to when you were 20 or something like that that's just i'm just blown away with that i'm just yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it is quite a thought yeah yeah wow okay um let's go back to you know young dale growing up you know your mother is doing this and there's you guys are living in the back and you're your three-story apartment there, and, and the Johns are coming knocking on the door, and you said that the community, they're, they're kind of aware, you know, what, Dale mom, what Dale's mom is doing. Um, that has to give some sort of, leave some sort of impact, um, you know, with your school, with your friends, with the things that you're involved with. How did it impact your life growing up? Well, greatly. I carried that burden for many years, many, many throughout my life. First of all, we were suffering from shame, and there's a certain amount of guilt that it goes with that feeling that you've created this. We were often, uh, children were taken away from us to not to play with us. Not That wasn't everybody. That wouldn't be mm-hmm. fair to say. But there were restrictions and rules and regulations, not always known to me mm-hmm. what they were. And recently when I was at a presentation, there was a woman there that lived in my community, and I was just blown away by what she said. I didn't even know her, but she said at this talk that I gave afterwards that she was told to cross the street and not walk by my building. Now, Mm. that's pretty extreme, but, I mean, people do and think crazy things. So Mm -hmm. over the years, and I write in the book, if you had a chance to read it, I was even asked to leave the Girl Scouts. I was probably 10 years old, and I was a little darling myself. And they were afraid that I would have some very uh, bad effect on them. And boyfriends were taken away and good Mm. girlfriends. So there was a lot of rejection. However, it wasn't all rejection, but it created a vacuum and a hole in my heart. And it's it's a hard thing to live with. Okay. So did you have friends that, like, you know, every girl has, like, sleepovers and slumber parties. Did did mothers let their daughters come and spend the night with you guys or uh only once that i and to me it was a big occasion that i had a a dear friend at the time over but i did all the staying out first of all i was always uh, too embarrassed to do that because not knowing quite what to expect but Mm -hmm. so i never tested the premise if they could really come and i'm sure they couldn't okay okay and um you mentioned in your book and, and on your website, um, in your, your your sister's growth at the age of 16, she came into the family and made a, a an announcement. Can you share with us what that was? Sure. I was nine years old at the time, and she was 16. And I thought of my sister very much as my savior, my mentor, my friend, all those things that not only as an older sister, but given what was going on in the house, uh, it, she was a very important person in my life, and she came out as a lesbian, mm-hmm. and I, it was just the most shocking thing because here was my safety net, who was suddenly displaying that she looked, she was very butch, she wore a DA haircut. I don't know if they even use that term anymore, <laughs> which was a duck's ass called a DA. Mm-hmm. And a bomber jacket, jeans, no makeup. And she had an extremely masculine persona. It was very frightening and mm-hmm. very upsetting. And being gay was a radioactive subject in the closeted 1950s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eventually, she ran away from home. And when the police found her, she was placed in a convent uh, for the weekend before she had to go to court. And then the court sent her to a mental institution for a period for observation, 
Well, can you imagine a Jewish girl in a convent? Nor was she crazy. <laughs> she definitely wasn't, but that's what they did 60 years ago. I was contorted with pain, and in my childish way, I, I felt that the one member of the family to whom I depended upon for comfort and support was also now revealed to be defective. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it was a really hole in my heart. I guess if we can quote Nietzsche, what does not destroy me makes me stronger. And I go. had a question myself, was this all going to destroy me? There you go. There you go. I mean, when life just keeps on giving you left hooks, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to have to find this this rope and I'm going to stand again, you know. But, um, you know, wow, it, it's it's like, okay, I'm trying to get through this situation with my mom and, you know, as a child, mentally grow up and, and deal with that. And, you know, the one lifeline I have now, you know, here she is leaving me. Uh, you know, that, that's that's just, that's just a blow there. Uh, but was she... Was she very feminine before? Is this, was this like a sudden change? or? Well, again, I was nine. She was 16. I think, I don't think it was obvious till you know, she really made her statement. And uh, maybe when she was 12, 13, 14, I, don't, I think that you know, she certainly didn't exhibit that masculine persona that I just referred to. But then as the years ensued, she really had that look for quite a while. And she lived homeless after she eventually left home. She lived on the streets for a while until she could get her act together. And eventually she began to bail out of that. uh, Again, I'll use the word persona. She realized that she wasn't going to be able to make it in the world and have any kind of a decent life if she conducted herself that way. Okay, I see, I see. Well, Dale, we're going to take uh, a quick commercial break, and we're going to come back and talk about some more of your uh, growing up experiences and how you came out of that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I am with Dale Stanton, the author of The Hooker's Daughter. And um, we had gotten to the point in her life where she uh, was nine years old and she had another blow in life when her sister came out and announced that she was a lesbian. So, Dale, your sister leaves the house and you're nine years old. You're already dealing with the fact that your mother is a prostitute. So now it's just you, your mom and your dad and you're nine years old, right? Yes. Okay. So now you're just by yourself in the dysfunction. That's correct. Okay. Um, How does that how does that work out for you? I mean, you have is there anybody in the community there for you? That's a support system, a grandmother, you know, a second cousin or I mean, do you have anybody to just lean on? Uh, actually, unequivocally, I can say no. <laughs> it sounds strange. It was before the time, I think, that social service agencies might have been, as they are today, more active. Mm-hmm. Nobody from the school came forth, and it just wasn't that way. I mean, the family, nobody from the family said, okay, Let's do something. The grandmothers, they knew. I mean, again, it was the best kept secret. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a secret. That's what I mean. It was the best kept open secret. That's so true. It's certainly, and I think that my, I don't know if you glean from what you read, there were also boyfriends in my mother's lives that were very much a part of our existence, and that was a different component. My mother, in addition to her activity, had a pretty steady boyfriend, and some of them came and went. I mean, over the years, there were more than one or two in our lives, but they became like fathers to us as substitute fathers. Okay. So I guess let me back up here. At some point in time, your mother and father split? No. No. Okay. No. Okay. So the the boyfriends were intertwined with the husband in some sort of way in the lifestyle. Well, my mother also shielded that part of her life uh, from him, and we were objects of lying to our father. Let's just say my mother was out for the afternoon after her business day ended or mornings or whatever, however she chose to do that. 
and uh, we were we were the props. Like, where have you been? Or if you if she was somewhere or doing something with a boyfriend as a bit of her social life, that too was a part of it. So they were not mixed and mingled with my father. But yes, there did become a point where they were. One of the boyfriends actually came to live with us for three years under the roost that he would be a business partner for my mother. They went into buying taxis together. Of course, they they only put down deposits on it, and they were leveraged like we think of real estate. And mm-hmm. her goal was, because she supplied the down payment, was to help herself to the money in the evening when he'd come back to the house before the the slips, the, they called them in those days waybills, were counted. Mm-hmm. So she could ensure that she would receive some of her investment back. Mm. So he lived with us for three days, three years. Excuse me. That is just so much for a young girl to have to kind of put together, package, and and digest, and you know, kind of grow up to be healthy with. You know what I'm saying? Because when you look back on it, you're like, wow, that was really chaotic. You're right. You're bringing to me that place when I talk about it. It's really hard to believe that all this chaos went on. It was yeah. complex. Mm-hmm. So um, I was reading one of the uh, excerpts from your book, and I just want to make sure I'm clear on the the players in Dale's story. Um, Billy is who? He was one of the – he's the boyfriend that I'm referring to that did, in okay. fact, live – with us for the three years. Okay, so and and you talk about one of the the excerpts in the books is um, Billy, the, one of the boyfriends that comes to uh, live with you. Um, he he kind of partook in a scam. Uh, we call it uh, chopping cars, where you kind of you know had stolen cars, changed numbers, and resold them for profit. Um, but he had to find a a place to conduct his business, so to speak. And he did it right under the nose of the the neighborhood rabbi. That's correct. There was a, he had a, he lived right next door to the building that we lived in in a single home, and he had a vacant garage. And unknown to him, uh, Billy rented the garage, and he would store the cars there. And when the numbers, they would expunge the number from the car, and you know, do whatever they had to do. Mm mm mm. Amazing. Now, where was your dad during Billy's stay? He lived there too. I, I can't. I can't. I'm sorry, Dale. I'm just trying to picture <laughs> it all. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, in and, in the and, the apartment in the apartment the three story apartment here no, no, on. No, 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 no. You're not. It's not three stories. It's three rooms. Three and a three, half rooms. Three and rooms he, on he, Blue he, Hill he, Avenue. It's you, your dad. Billy and your mom. Right. And, and he, Dad is okay with this. Well, I he it went under the guise of that this was the the business partner and I imagine again I was young, I'm not sure what the verbiage between my mother and father would have been that she probably said to my father that, Oh, this is my opportunity to get to extract some money every night from the cash before he would know. And so it was a, um, it, it's a crazy dance, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Yes. It's just very amazing. Um, so at this point in time, you know, we talked about dad previously that, you know, he was kind of off and on with the job thing. Was he working steady while Billy was around or no? Yeah, he was. He was the taxi cab driver. Okay. And he 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 would go out, and again he wasn't too enthusiastic about putting in long hours, and and he would often I, he would hang out with the guys and liked it, being a typical cab driver in line as they're waiting for fares, and and they used to harangue. He he was uh, the king of the pinball machine. He would go into some place and, <laughs> and play the pinball. So okay. to get a sense of what went on. But, yes, he did work. Again, okay. I don't imagine that what he came home with, his earnings, were sufficient. Okay, okay. And let's not, you know, dump on mom the whole 
time that me and you talk. Um, I don't know if you're aware. Is it possible that your father also had his female friends as well as your mother? Are Do you know anything like that? Oh, absolutely. He did. Okay. I don't think he was as overtly, uh, let's say, active, but absolutely. We even met some. And he, he would bring them home. Everybody played nice. I mean, it mm. was, again, it was so strange. Everybody played nice with their dalliances, although I... I don't believe my fathers were ever as actively involved as perhaps my mother. But okay. certainly over the years, there were a couple of different girlfriends that my father brought around. Wow. I mean, I guess it, it was the 1950s, 1960s version of today's swinging lifestyle, maybe. I don't I don't know. I mean, it just... Swinging and yet covered up. My mother... <laughs> Covered it up more than I can remember on a couple occasions of meeting my father's alleged girlfriends. Now, how deeply involved he was with them, I suspect and, and do, that they didn't matter to the amount of uh, energy and time my mother might have been involved with her. But, yeah, I, I guess that would be an interesting term, swinging or whatever. Forward, so you know, Dale grows a little older. She's hitting her teenage years now. You know, we've got high school functions or whatever, and you start to get your own interest in boys and develop your own relationships. Um, being exposed to your mother's activities and also your father's activities, do you think you had? What were your expectations of what a relationship should should be like at a young age? Do you recall? Yeah, I think that I had vowed to myself as a young child, when I talk about six, that I think even then I made the vow that I needed to stay strong and take care of myself because it sure wasn't going to happen in that environment. And mm-hmm. I think that that prevailed right through my teenage years and probably basically through most of my life in that I knew that I had to keep myself, if I wanted to have a decent life, on the straight and narrow. So I think that somehow or another I was able to sort of have a vision of what seemed like was normal, and I was a great voyeur, if you will, Mm -hmm. and tried to think of or imagine what was normal. All I wanted to be was, as they say, normal, conventional, and not be shamed. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I if I didn't take that attitude, I mean, it was such an intrinsic experience for me that if I didn't, that I would think, hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you want me to expound further. I'm sorry, the silence. I was just wondering. Oh, no, no, because I kind of heard a silence there. But, no, I'm, you were talking about you wanted to do anything that you felt was normal. So I'm just wondering, normal to you in your mind at maybe like 16, 17, was just anything that was completely opposite of what your mother and father were doing? Yeah, I think I took that stance. And not to be trite, but I, I probably had the vision of, what we think of that uh, program, whatever it was in those years, to use it now as a, an example, father knows best, you know, the mom, okay. the dad, the dog, that whole kind of thing, because I certainly didn't have any of that experience, and nor did I have uh, much that I could go on other than what I envisioned for myself. Okay, so those types of things became your your model or your example of how you wanted to pattern your life then. Which is what I thought was perhaps normal. Okay, okay. So um, before we go to break, I want to um, move on to at some point in time, you moved out of your parents' house, you started your own life, and you became a mother, you got married. Uh, at what what age was this when you moved out of your parents' house? I got married at age 22, so I was there before that. And one of the things that hindsight is easy, as I grew older, I always sort of kicked my rear and said, why didn't I run away and leave earlier? And you're not asking me this question, but I'm telling you, because when I say 22, it always shocks me because today's society is so different. But I didn't have the tools, and I imagine the mental tools to feel that I could succeed if I did run away. Here my sister had and was basically, well, struggled, and I was really afraid to. And so I went from the house to marriage, but I often thought, 
why didn't I do it? And for a long mm-hmm. time, it it haunted me. But that uh, again, you didn't ask me that, but I'm offering that. And mm-hmm. also, as a teenager, I could barely name careers and other paths with the people. Oh, okay. And if I did, I had no real sense that they would ever be possible for me to get to, or how. And some people come up expecting to win, and I basically was coming up hoping not to lose. Okay, okay, understandable. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's totally understandable, totally understandable. Okay, um, we're going to take the last break of the day, Dale, and when we come back, we're going to talk about... um, your heal, start of your start of your healing process and uh, with marriage and the changes that you made after you left the house. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I am with Dale Stanton today, and I am just uh, completely in awe as I listen to her story. Um, we're now at the point, uh, before the break, we had gotten to the point where she's left the house at the age of 22 and uh, got married. Uh, now she's going to become a mother. And I'm curious, Dale, when you got married and when you started to have kids, did you at any time in the beginning, you know, say, Look, this is the baggage that I'm bringing to the relationship. This is the this is this is where I came from. This is who I am. Or did you keep it a secret? Well, actually, uh, I'll bring you back a little further than that. Up until the age of 23, I never ever discussed with anybody what was going on in my life. Again, I was very much alone in the process. And at age 23, I took the big step of seeking out a psychiatrist. Okay. And it was quite a step because in those days it was certainly considered a stigma to seek therapy. However, I knew that if I didn't, I would end up in the gutter. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point I was already, I was just married a year. So at that point, I, I hadn't even ever discussed it with my husband, even though he sometimes, as the years went on, he would come back with stories to me and it would be very painful and hurtful, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, was, his need to do it, whatever, that's not the point. Mm -hmm. So I began to sort of unfurl like a flag, if you will, Mm -hmm. by being able to get some therapy and talk about it and finally to be able to feel trust, which is a very big issue when you go through a lot like that. Very difficult to trust people and to be able to have confidentiality. So that was the start of it, and I uh, carried that burden for with me. Sure, it was not something I could dismiss because it was it, it was the fabric of my personality of what had made me who I was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a lot, lot to carry, a lot of weight to carry, and you know I think that speaks volumes to who you are on the inside to say at some point in time, look, I know this is a stigma to go seek therapy, but I'm going to do this for me. This is something I need for myself because I know I'm not going to be whole or healthy unless I go talk to somebody about this. Um, you know, so that's phenomenal in itself. Now you start to heal. Um, you're starting to get better. You know, you're starting to deal with the issues of your past. And unfortunately, um, in your marriage, life deals you another blow. Um, how far were you into the marriage before you found out that your your husband had cancer? Oh, probably about, I think it was about seven or eight years. And at that point, I was a really young mother and, again, striving to be what I thought was normal and conventional. I'll have to use that word again because that's all I wanted to do was fade into being traditional and conventional after having come out of a life like that. And I joked with Mm-hmm. friends or myself, I don't think I left my home every day until the, the rug, I vacuumed every day and there was a piece of lint and I was uh, Miss Homemaker, uh, cooking, mm-hmm. cleaning, whatever. And so that was my way of thinking that I was going to be have this traditional existence. Anyway, I was 30 years old when he became ill with brain cancer in addition to other ailments that he had, juvenile diabetes, etc. And at 30, 
I was isolated once again and very alone. He, his, it was a terminal illness, and he fought its debilitating effects for over six years. Mm. But my dreams and hopes of having a normal family and community life, which I didn't have, were quickly dashed. And mm-hmm. my children, they suffered. And trust me, nobody wanted to hang out with death. I was like a pariah once again. Mm-hmm. And I was well-seasoned from lessons I had learned as a child, which served me. I was able to judge what was important. And uh, now hindsight's easy. I can refer to the uh, uh, like a tree. The roots of my tree were strong. And I had those choices. I could either fall off a bus to a dead drunk or mm-hmm. forge ahead. Mm-mm-mm. So you're 30 years old um, when you find out, and you said uh, your husband held on till you were about 36. Um, but you had been a traditional stay-at-home husband. I mean, stay-at-home wife and mother at this point in time. You have no tools, I'm assuming, by the time he passes at 37, to uh, provide for your family. Am I correct? Well, again, going back a bit, I was struggling because I didn't have an education, but I did uh, go out into the workforce and got, oh, a very quick uh, secretarial training, which wasn't very adequate. So I had become a secretary, then I did a legal secretary. I was always two steps behind. I got a real estate broker's license. (laughs) I was striving to be in the world, but then when I got, so I did work for a few years prior to this or during the marriage and mm-hmm. then I looked at my options and realized I had never been knew not realized that I'd never been educated and I craved to do that and also his prognosis was very grave and I knew that I was going to have I had these little children they were two and six that I would eventually need to support them so I decided to go to nursing school which was a very full Hardy endeavor because he was so ill and the children were so little, but I wanted to be able to make a a better life not only for my children but also my life was over within the community. Like I just said earlier, nobody wanted to hang out with death, and we mm-hmm. were at thirty years old. He was older than me. I mean, there was no more playing nice with other couples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now. Um, you know, th- these are some very dark times, some dark moments, and people tend to kind of, their thoughts tend to be kind of all over the place when you're just trying to just put the pieces together. Um, were there any quiet, quick moments, even if it was fleeting, you know, where you're like, you know, life is really rough now, I'm, I've got these two children I'm trying to take care of, maybe, you know, my mom held it together like this, you know, maybe I need to explore some other options. Did you ever have any thoughts like that? Well, the option was thinking that if I was going to nursing school and I stuck it out and I I did become an RN, that I would be able to be a professional person that was educated and could really support my children when the need came. And I guess the joy of my life were my children, and that's what sustained me because I wanted to shield them from as much heartache as I could. And I knew that they were going, of course, through a lot as young children. they They were part of their father's, what was going on, their father's illness and the very extreme conditions at home. And he he went blind in addition to, I, he had so many things wrong with him, the list could go mm-hmm. on and on. So they were privy to the day-to-day things that would go on around the house and the sadness. So my goal at that point was just to keep my kids and myself going, of course, and him, because I really wanted to make life as best as I could. And I'm told many years after having gone through the experience of going to school for three and a half years under very difficult circumstances, that the objective that I did that was so that if I became a nurse, I could save him. Well, that's quite a statement when I was told Mm -hmm. that through therapy. I said, wow. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, possibly, possibly. Yep, right. We do many things that are always on so apparent at the time 
Good deal. Okay. Now, Dale, before we wrap things up and get out of here, I just have one quick question. Um, sure. After you left the house, got married and everything, what was your parents' relationship like afterwards? With me, you mean? Yes, yes. You and your parents' relationship. What was it like afterwards? Well, uh, when I first became a parent myself and had my children, I really struggled with how could parents do what they did to me, and I, I was questioning that. It was a difficult transition for me, and I had a few years. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was a complex thing. I was angry, and yet I loved them. I was taught to honor your mother and father under all conditions, no matter mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. and we were brainwashed. And on the other hand, I had a lot of anger to deal with. And, as, and so for, there was a period of time where I didn't even speak to them a couple of years, but that was more uncharacteristic rather than the nurturing stance that I ended up taking, which I did, because that was the way I was brought up with, and that's what I knew. And with it all, I basically forgave them, and which was very healing. I forgave them. True. And and love them because I think that if anybody listening or knows, I think that if you're a student of religion, the Bible or anything, we're really taught to honor our parents, no matter what, under all conditions. And they put us through no, I, a, a great deal, but they had their, their good sides, too. And I tried to extract the good, and that's what I clung to. And so I did assume a, a, a very, as much as I could, nurturing position. So that was the relationship. Good deal. I mean, and I think, you know, sometimes kids um, uh, have a hard time dealing with the fact that, you know, parents aren't perfect. And, and sometimes parents are only doing what tools, are working with what tools that they have and know how. I mean, we're all in some ways broken and we're trying to put the pieces back together and, and, we just sometimes don't have the tools to be, you know, the father knows best type parents all the time. So um, I think that's beautiful that you were able to, you know, go ahead and forgive because that's a very vital part in making your life complete is to forgive. And uh, I just think it's beautiful how you evolved and, and come out of your situation. Get, uh, Dale, we are at the end of the hour and um, it has been truly an amazing pleasure uh, spending this time with you. Uh I want everybody to visit Dale's website, thehookersdaughter.com, and buy the book. It's available on Amazon. And where else, Dale? Uh, it can be purchased through my website. I'm happy to sign it. It's also Infinity Publishing. And for tablet readers, nor Kindle Eye readers, it's available that way as well. And I also have my email in the back of the book uh, if anybody chooses to make a comment to me or have any questions or whatever. I certainly appreciate it and welcome them. And I've been Skyping with book clubs and that too for any of your listeners. If you have a desire to do that with your book club or organization, that's certainly possible as well. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, Dale, thank you for hanging out with me today and sharing your story. I wish you many, many more blessings. That is all for this week's show. I will see everybody next week. Mm -hmm. 